rapidly approaching on the uh, the end of the month. So tonight we have Dr. Phil Klotzbach on with us uh, from Colorado State University. Uh, he is a tropical weather expert and as you know, uh, we like to talk about the tropics here. And tonight we're going to be looking um, at the uh, outlook for it, the uh, tropical seasons, uh, to get Phil's uh, take on what he feels like will be happening. So uh, we are glad that you are joining us tonight. If you do have any questions uh, throughout the show, you can do that one of many ways. Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, at Carolina WX Group, or you can leave a comment on the Facebook Live or Periscope uh, feed. And if you're listening to the podcast, maybe later on in the week or a few days from now, uh, we'll let Phil share his social media um, information towards the end of the show, and uh, you can uh, tweet some questions towards him. So uh, Phil is on a tight schedule tonight, so we're going to skip the weather roundtable for right now. We may do that towards the end of the show. Uh, but I'm going to bring in Shay Gibson, our resident tropical expert. And Shay, I'll let you uh, start off the show tonight. Thank you, Scotty. Yeah, we do have uh, Dr. Philip Klotzbach in with us tonight and a very exciting show because he's, he's what many consider a lead scientist. And in fact, he works for his research scientist in the Department of Atmospheric Scientists, um, or Science, I'm sorry, and he works with uh, Colorado State University. So we have him on tonight. He comes out with annual predictions for the hurricane season. His last one was May 31st. And we're going to touch base with him to find out what his uh, new take on it is and when the next update may be and what the outlook is going to be for this the rest of the hurricane season so without uh, more than that uh, I'll go ahead and pass it to you Dr. Philip. and if you'd like to introduce yourself tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and uh, we'll dive right into the topic for tonight. Awesome well thanks so much Shane Scotty uh, thanks so much for having me on the program. Um, I'm Phil Klotzbach I work in the atmospheric science department at Colorado State. Uh, I worked for several or for about 15 years with Dr. Bill Gray who is the father of seasonal hurricane prediction. And um, I could spend hours telling you all sorts of uh, Bill Gray stories. He's very, uh, he was a brilliant scientist. He did a lot of work with the seasonal forecast, but he also did fundamental work on tropical cyclone genesis, intensity, structure. And if any of you ever got a chance to meet him, he certainly was a, was a character as well. We actually published a paper in the bulletin of the American Meteorological Society last November that has an article on discussing kind of his research legacy. Um, but I work with Dr. Gray a lot in the seasonal forecasts, um, and I started working with him in 2001 on the forecast. So I've been working with, I work with him through um, his death in 2016, and now I'm currently the lead author on the seasonal forecast along with my colleague, Michael Bell. Um, work, out at, work out at CSU. Uh, a lot of people want to know why, do you, why the heck are you doing seasonal forecasts in Colorado? And the answer is the storm surge can't get you at 5,000 feet. Um, but no, seriously, the reason why they started, the reason why hurricanes have, uh, been a focus at CSU for a long time is because the guy who started our department, his name was Herbert Real, um, who actually came from the University of Chicago, which is still nowhere near hurricanes. Um, and he was asked to start our department in the early 1960s. And when he came out to start the department, um, he had brought some of his hurricane people and Dr. Gray was finishing off his PhD at the time. Um, so he came out a few years later to, to um, work with Herbert Real. And when Dr. Gray passed away, we actually found the original offer letter that Herbert Real had sent to Dr. Gray back in 1964. Dr. Gray never got rid of anything. Um, we found a lot of interesting stuff uh, in his office um, after cleaning up. He'd been in the same office for uh, 48 years. Um, so definitely a lot of bleach and stuff needed to clean up his office for, the, uh, for, for Michael, who's now, now working in his office. Um, but that's what I do. I do the seasonal hurricane forecast. I'm interested in hurricanes on timescales from day to day to weekly, monthly, seasonal, um, and beyond to multi-decadal and climate change timescales. 
Um, I'll show my social stuff at the end, but I'm pretty active on Twitter. I try to post a lot of, um, I'm, I'm a kind of a stats guy, so I like to post a lot of statistics about the hurricane season um, and uh, tropical cyclone activity, not just in the Atlantic, but globally. Um, but now let's go on and I just want to share a few slides today. So we're going to share our screen and I'm going to briefly talk with you about the uh, outlook for the 2018 hurricane season. Um, so the 2018 hurricane season, as all of you all know, started on June the 1st. Um, so our final forecast we put out on May 31st was for a near average season, a total of 14 named storms. Um, one of those being Hurricane or Alberto, so 13 additional storms, six hurricanes, and two major hurricanes. Um, accumulated cyclone energy, which is an integrated index that takes into account the frequency, the intensity, and the duration of storms. Um, it's kind of a geeky metric that we like to use. It kind of gives us one number to assess a season. The reason that we like ACE is because you can have a season that has a whole pile of storms. Uh, for example, 2013, we had 14 named storms. But of those 14 storms, only two became hurricanes. So it was really a dud of a season, even though the number of storms is actually a little bit above the long-term average. Body, the incredible. Um, so we're predicting a near-average hurricane season in late May, and we're actually be updating our forecast on July 2nd. And with that a July update, we'll likely be lowering our numbers significantly, and I'll talk with you a little bit about that in just a minute. Um, so our forecast used statistical methods and historical data to come up with our predictions. Unlike what some of our critics might say, we're not throwing darts at a board. We're not um, waking up in the morning like my meteorological namesake, the groundhog, uh, Punxsutawney Phil, and seeing if we can see our shadow. We use historical data and historical information to come up with these forecasts. Um, so our current model for June uses a total of four predictors, two in the Atlantic that are trying to basically assess kind of the state of the large-scale conditions in the Atlantic, and two in the tropical Pacific, which are trying to assess the state of El Nino. And El Nino is a very important driver of hurricane activity in the Atlantic. When you have El Nino, which is warmer than normal water in the eastern and central tropical Pacific, it tends to decrease your storm activity in the Atlantic basin. Alternatively, when you have a La Nina, uh, it tends to have more hurricane activity in the Atlantic due to changes in upper level winds, which we'll talk about in just a couple of minutes. So our forecast from early June shows reasonably good skill. Now these models aren't perfect. You are gonna have some years where you bust and that's just because you're using a statistical model and basing it on historical data, and there's only so many realizations that you have of past hurricane seasons, and there's only so many realizations that we have of kind of how the atmosphere and ocean were behaving. As you go back in time, prior to satellite era and say the late 60s, early 70s, the data gets sketchy. Um, the hurricane data isn't as good, as well as the weather data we have for water temperatures and pressures. There are fewer observations, and consequently, the data just is less reliable. Um, so consequently, when you're building these models, there's always kind of a um, kind of a push and pull between do you want to build a model off of more years of data where the data is less reliable, or do you want to build a model on newer data but where you only have few, where you have fewer realizations? And so that's kind of a battle that we're always weighing when developing our statistical models. Um, so the current forecast for 2018, um, the tropical Atlantic right now is very cold. I'll talk a lot more about that in a couple of minutes. And we're, we're, we're starting to potentially head towards an El Nino event. Uh, NOAA recently came out with an outlook saying that they put out an El Nino watch, and there is a chance that we might reach the El Nino threshold for El Nino by the peak of the hurricane season, which um, the peak three months are August through October. September is the peak month. The Atlantic hurricane season is much more peak than any other, than any other tropical cyclone basin. About half of all your accumulated cyclone energy, about half of all your storm activity occurs during the month of September. Now last year was kind of that example on steroids where we had 
um, over twice the average hurricane season in one month, just during the month of September. So an incredibly active September last year. Um, but we think we might be headed towards a potential weak El Nino event for the hurricane season. But I think that's going to be a secondary driver of overall storm activity compared with what we have going on in the Atlantic. So, quick question, if we could go back to that. Yes. Go back to that picture right there. So for our viewers out there, we're, we're talking about El Nino and Enso uh, cycles um, and, and we're getting kind of technical here, but stop for a second and tell us about what's in that box. What, what constitutes an El Nino versus a La Nino? What, what the temperature of the water, what is the difference that it makes in order for it to be an El Nino versus La Nino? Yeah, that's a good point. So when you have an El Nino, so these, these differences are fairly small when you think about it. So NOAA's official definition of an El Nino is when the water temperatures exceed half a degree Celsius warmer than normal. And a La Nina is half a degree Celsius cooler than normal. So about one degree Fahrenheit either way. And while you know a degree or two Fahrenheit doesn't seem like much, it's a lot in the deep tropics. Obviously in the mid latitudes, it doesn't make play much of a difference, but in the, in the tropics, one, two degrees Fahrenheit is a very big deal, can cause big changes in the atmospheric circulation, which is really how El Nino impacts the Atlantic hurricanes. Um, since obviously you're talking about warm waters in the Pacific Ocean and hurricanes, Atlantic hurricanes obviously form in the Atlantic. Basically what happens is when you have an El Nino event, you end up getting changes in lower and upper level winds. So in the Atlantic, your low level winds always blow out of the, or typically blow out of the east, and your upper level winds blow out of the west. So those low-level winds are called the trade winds. Um, these are the winds that blew the explorers over to the New World um, hundreds of years ago, and they still blow every. Oh, they still blow today. And when you have an El Nino, you get slightly stronger trade winds, but you get much stronger winds at upper levels, much stronger westerly winds, and consequently, in the vertical, you have what's known as a vertical wind shear. So the change in wind direction with height is quite strong. And basically, hurricanes want to be upright. They want as little shear as possible. Too much shear tilts the hurricane circulation, disrupts the vortex, and you're less able to get the tropical cyclone storms and especially the hurricanes. Um, for example, 2015 was a very strong El Nino and overall very quiet Atlantic hurricane season. Um, and it's not just El Nino, other factors obviously play an important role in Atlantic hurricane activity as well. But El Nino was one of the original relationships that Dr. Gray discovered back in the early 80s. He used it in his first prediction model in 1984, and most seasonal forecast groups, our group at CSU, NOAA, um, the UK Met Office, Tropical Storm Risk, all of these groups take into account El Nino when putting out their seasonal hurricane forecasts. Um, so here's the latest forecast from the US government. Um, they're up to about a 50% chance of an El Nino for the August through October period. Um, so it's gone up a bit from what they were forecasting in the early May. Um, I don't think at this point it's going to be a strong El Nino event, and if the Atlantic was much warmer, we probably wouldn't necessarily play that much of a role. But since the Atlantic is very cold right now, um, it, it potentially could play, could have somewhat more of an impact and really knock down the season, even more than what we see, what we expect to see from just how cold the Atlantic is right now. Right now, the, Atlantic, the Pacific Ocean is, is running a decent amount warmer than normal. Um, this is looking at upper ocean heat content, so not just the water temperatures that are at the surface, but how the waters are um, slightly below the surface, because if you have a lot of warmth below the surface, um, especially in the central Pacific, that will often um, tend to come up towards the surface and evidence itself in potentially a weak, maybe even a moderate El Nino event by the time we get to um, this upcoming winter and potentially have significant impacts uh, for the United States. Then we have what's going on in the tropical Atlantic. 
Now, um, I recently wrote a blog for the Capital Weather Gang from the Washington Post comparing the 2018 season and the 2017 season. In mid-March, both 2017 and 2018 have very similar water temperature patterns across the tropical Atlantic and the North Atlantic. Overall, it was kind of cold in the North Atlantic, a little bit warm off the East Coast, and a little bit cold in the tropical Atlantic. Well, in 2017, the pressure patterns were very low in the subtropics. In 2018, the pressures were very high. And so uh, when you think about the circulation around a high pressure system, it's clockwise. So on its eastern extent, you have um, air coming out of the east and out of the north. And basically, when you have air out of the east, it's bringing down colder water. Um, I'm sorry, air out of the north is bringing down colder water and colder air. And the uh, winds tending to blow out of the east means the winds are stronger because your trade winds are going to be stronger. Stronger winds mean more mixing, more evaporation, more upwelling, more churning up of the sea surface. Similarly to the way, if say you get out of a pool on a windy day, you get cold very fast, you get a lot of evaporation, it causes a lot of cooling, a lot of mixing. And consequently, we have very cold water temperatures in the tropical Atlantic right now. Um, so there's a box that we often define called the main development region, which is about 10 to 20 degrees north latitude, 20 to 60 west longitude. This area is where a lot of your major hurricanes form. And right now you see all sorts of blues indicating much colder than normal water in that region. Actually, right now, the water temperatures with the daily anomalies are actually the coldest that they've been going back to 1982, which is when the daily data started. So they're the coldest water temperatures we've seen in the tropical Atlantic in over 30 years. Really quite remarkable. And typically, a colder water is associated with less active hurricane seasons because colder water means less fuel for the storm since a hurricane's fuel source is warm, or is warm ocean water. Cooler water means less fuel for the storms, but it also tends to be associated with higher pressure, a more stable atmosphere, more dust outbreaks, um, more dry air, basically just all sorts of conditions that tend to suppress the hurricane season. So at this point, while our current forecast is for a near average season, likely with our July update, we'll be reducing our forecast considerably because the cold water has been very persistent. Typically in the deep tropics, um, in the tropical Atlantic, your patterns tend to lock in about mid-July. So once you get into mid-July, if you have cold anomalies in the tropics, they're less likely to go away over the next couple of months. Um, those strong trade winds tend to weaken climatologically, so you're less likely to get big shifts in weather patterns during the late July through August, September timeframe. Um, the latest forecast from the climate forecast system, which is NOAA's model, is calling for um, a little bit warmer than normal in the tropical Pacific. They're actually going a little more aggressive and potentially calling for a week to moderate El Nino by August through October. Um, the model is calling for some warming in the tropical Atlantic. Calling for a lot of warming, and so far we haven't really seen that. Um, so if you have, say, a weak El Nino combined with a very cold Atlantic, that would likely suppress the hurricane season significantly. So we put out four seasonal forecasts. Our first forecast comes out on April 5th. Um, this year it did. Uh, we always put out a forecast in early April. We update it late May, early June. Then we update it again in early July and a final forecast on the 2nd of August. Now I like to point out that while certainly August 2nd is two months into the hurricane season, um, it's important to note that about 95% of all your major hurricane activity, so the category three to five hurricanes, comes after the 1st of August. So even though we were two months into the season on August 1st, most of your major hurricane activity is still to come. And also by then you have a better idea of how the atmosphere ocean are behaving. Um, so as you would expect, our forecasts show kind of marginal skill in April, 
moderate skill in late May, early June, and then good skill in July and August because we're closer to the events that we're trying to predict. And especially our confidence in the El Nino, uh, La Nina forecast goes up considerably by the July into August timeframe. Um, if you're really interested in seasonal forecasts, uh, there's a website. Um, it's a website that we developed at CSU um, with the Barcelona Supercomputing Center doing a real heavy lifting for this website at seasonalhurricanepredictions.org. Uh, we now have over 25 groups submitting seasonal forecasts to this website. So if you're interested in seasonal forecasts, um, our group at CSU does them, but there's a large number of um, universities, private sector weather forecasting companies, as well as government agencies also issuing these forecasts. So I definitely invite you to check these out if you're interested in seasonal forecasts. Um, and here's a, um, an example of kind of a screenshot from a couple of weeks ago showing what the seasonal forecasts were. Um, and there's even more of that out there today. So I invite you to check that out if you're interested in the seasonal forecasts. Um, on the website, we not only have the forecast displayed, but we also have a, a, um, some, a short discussion basically describing why the forecasts are calling for what they are. Um, and so what I'd like to finish with is just my contact info. So if you're interested in getting in touch with me, um, I recommend you, you can always email me. Uh, we have a website where we have uh, the seasonal forecast. So when you hear the forecast, you probably just hear, you know, the numbers are, you know, 14 storms, six hurricanes, whatever. But on the website we have, uh, there's a, a document that goes with each of those forecasts, typically 30 to 40 pages long. We go into great detail describing why we're forecasting what we are, why are we using the models that we are. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, I definitely recommend downloading these and help put you to sleep. Um, we also, I do a lot of stuff on Twitter. Um, definitely follow me on Twitter if you guys, if you use Twitter. Uh, Facebook page um, is basically a mirror of my Twitter feed. So if you follow me on Twitter, you don't need to follow me on Facebook. In general, I recommend Twitter just because you can, I just mirror Twitter to Facebook and the animations come out a lot better on Twitter. Uh, they don't often post on Facebook. Um, so with that, thanks for, for um, paying attention to that. And I'll, um, I'll stop sharing my screen now and I'm happy to answer any questions that may have arisen during the, um, during the talk. All right, well, I guess I'll lead off. Um, you, that was quite a bit of information. Thank you very much for the slideshow. It was excellent, uh, excellent information. So I think a, a lot of folks are sort of wondering uh, after last year, when are things gonna start getting ramped up? Um, and, and I'll share my screen. There's one thing that, that you talked about a little bit ago, uh, and that was the TC heat potential, which is tropical cyclone heat, heat potential. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the current look, and you can see the main development region, which you showed, is, is fairly neutral. It doesn't look like there's anything much going on over in, in this part of the Atlantic Ocean, but the Caribbean is usually a hot spot. And you talked about depth of warm water, um, the mesopelagic zone, uh, or the epipelagic mesopelagic zones. Uh, for the most part, Mesa is a little bit deeper down, but when we talk about surface water, how important is sea surface temperatures surface-wise uh, for storms to develop in these areas? Yeah, so I mean, I, so basically, typically with the hurricane season, um, it really ramps up in August, and what you find if you kind of plot up a map of shear, and I kind of always think of two basic things. You have shear and sea surface temperatures are two of your primary drivers uh, for hurricane activity, and climatologically, what starts your season is getting the waters warm enough. Um, if you look at storms that form early, they often form in, say, the Gulf of Mexico or Western Caribbean. No surprise, because that's where your, your heat potential is that time of year. Um, but when to get storms forming further east and having these long tracks like Irma's and Maria's and Jose's, um, the sea surface temperatures need to warm up enough. So in, in a year like last year, the waters were pretty warm. So the water and temperatures were warm enough to support hurricanes pretty far east in the basin. 
Um, sometimes if say the waters are colder, you're those, those systems can't develop until they get further west. So kind of what typically starts your hurricane season is the water temperatures. And what ends your season is your vertical wind shear getting too strong. So if you look at shear, your shear is actually lowest in the tropical Atlantic in, in, in August, July, late July through August, but the waters aren't really warm enough to really support the storms until later in the season. Now, if you have a very warm tropical Atlantic, sometimes you can get these storms forming further or forming earlier in the season. So typically if you get named storms forming in kind of what I said, that main development region prior to the 1st of August, that's a harbinger of a very, very active season. But it's more of a necessary condition or a sufficient condition, but not a necessary one. Because you can certainly get very active seasons with no storms in the main development region prior to the 1st of August. A recent case in point of that was 2004. We didn't get our first storm that year, Alex, until I believe August the 1st. And it was obviously an incredibly active season. Had the most active September on record until last year, which, uh, which broke that record from 2004. Um, but yes, as you mentioned before, um, if you're going to get storms early, they typically form in the Gulf of Mexico, Western Caribbean, or off the, uh, or off the U.S. East Coast, kind of where Alberto formed is a classic uh, location for early season storms to form. And that slide perfectly shows the peak of the hurricane season on September 10th. It really starts to ramp up about August 20th. So Dr. Gray used to come in um, to our tropical weather discussions, which we hold every day during from about early July through October. On August 20th, he would come in and ring a bell. And he said, basically, that's signaling the active part of the season. And often that's really the case is around August 20th, the season really does ramp up. And you certainly saw that even last year where season we had a few storms, but nothing really of significance. Around August 20th, um, what, what, what had been Harvey started to convect, have some deep convection fire up near it again. Um, a few days later, it was a Category 4, and then it was pretty much all hell broke loose through the end of September. Uh, Phil, one thing that uh, here in the southeast that we see a lot of is these stalled cold fronts or these cold fronts that move through and kind of stall off the coast and uh, generate uh, what we call homegrown systems. Do you see a lot of that happening maybe this year with, with like you were talking about, the, the deep Atlantic a little bit cooler? We may see uh, storms generate more closer to the coastline. Yeah, I mean, that, that can definitely happen often, especially with El Nino's. You kind of almost find an opposite relationship where your deep tropical storm activity will get suppressed, but you'll get more of these kind of subtropical, what we used to call like basically junk storms. You know, typically the stuff that forms really close to the coast doesn't they have enough time to really get that particularly strong or do that much damage. But I think in these kind of years where, you know, the deep tropics is probably going to be cold and have a lot of shear, you might see some more of these kind of trailing frontal things spinning up. But often, again, these storms don't typically have the significant impacts that we get from storms forming in the deep tropics. Most of your major hurricanes that hit the U.S. form in the deep tropics or Western Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico. Um, oh, perfect. This is great. Um, so, yeah, you can see the prevailing tracks month by month. Again, June, July tends to be more stuff in the deep tropics or sorry, the Western Atlantic. And then you see kind of the, the, the formation zone shift towards the east in August and then maximize more in the central Atlantic in September and then shift back west. Um, in October. Um, typically, if El Nino does develop, El Nino has its strongest impacts on late season storms. So if we were to get an El Nino, I would expect a very quick end to the season in October. It would tend to be very quiet late in the season because El Nino really ramps up your shear. And remember what I said, shear is typically what ends your season. So if you have El Nino, you have more shear, tends to cut off your season early. So typically, El Nino seasons have very little late season storm activity. Um, and especially stuff in the Western Caribbean, which is if you're going to get nasty storms late in the season, that's typically where they're going to come out of is the Western Caribbean.
Okay, so I have a question for you since I come from emergency management career path. So we're kind of split with how we use these forecasts. Some EMs think it's really important and kind of ramp up based on if you say more or less. And then I've also heard of some that pretty much throw it out the window because they have the philosophy that uh, one is one. If one comes in and, and it hits you, that's kind of the deal. So how do you want us to use that in applied emergency management? And how can we teach EMs to use this in a way that's the most effective for them to understand for preparedness? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to the um, emergency management, we always basically say, you know, you need to be prepared the same for every hurricane season since it just takes, you know, that one hurricane near you to make it an active season for you. Um, obviously, you know, with the seasonal forecasts, we're not perfect. Um, there are some years where the forecast doesn't do well. Um, you know, there are there are cases where the forecast, Dr. Gray had a great forecast in 92 of only one major hurricane. It just happened to be Hurricane Andrew. Um, so you can have those kinds of situations. With that being said, in general, more active seasons do have more landfalls. I mean, you can kind of pick and choose years where it didn't work out that way, but in general, you do the odds do go up. And if you have an active season, the odds of landfalls do go up. So I think when it comes to the general public, we say it's an informational tool. People are curious and want to know how active the season is, but you can't say where the storms are going to make landfall. And it's, it's important to prepare the same for every hurricane season. You know, I know a lot of emergency managers that I've talked to basically use it as kind of a hook to say, hey, you know, they just came up with seasonal forecast, you know, now's the time to, to, you know, start having a hurricane plan. I mean, I think, honestly, when it comes to preparation this year, it's like shooting fish in a barrel because everyone saw what happened last year. So they're freaked out about hurricanes. And it's like 2006, we saw the same thing after 04 and 05 with Katrina's and Rita's and Charlie's. Everyone was really fired up and ready for hurricane season. Then you get a few years where hurricanes are a lot less impactful to the U.S., and people kind of get lax. So last year we were talking about hurricane amnesia and getting people fired up. And then we had last year. And so this year it's not going to be an issue. But we actually even saw that with national flood insurance policies. NFIP policies dropped about 20%, I believe, between 2009 and last year. And I guarantee you they spiked right back up after what we just saw. And it was interesting. I saw with Hurricane Harvey, 40% of the houses that flooded in Hurricane Harvey were outside of the 500-year floodplain. Uh, that was from the Houston, Harris County District. So it's important that even if you don't necessarily live in a 100-year flood zone, you still your house can still flood. So it's really important. You know, if you live anywhere near any body of water, you definitely consider flood insurance. Definitely. I agree with all of that. Thank you very much. Sure. Yeah, you had some amazing stats uh, last year. And, and you talked about ACE and, and how much ACE Maria harnessed all in one fell swoop and, and how much ACE the Atlantic generated last year. Uh, talk a little bit about what you do statistically, because you, you put out some amazing information, things that people would never think about. Uh, where do you where do you gather your information from? I mean, do you just look at do you have like a whole like tree that you follow or, or how do you how do you generate this information? Yeah, I mean, I, I just have a massive, massive spreadsheets with queries that I've written to kind of grab stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, from doing the seasonal forecast, you have I've got extensive data actually globally on storms. Um, so I have all the historical weather data, which is all comes from the National Hurricane Center. And then I just kind of parse it in ways that I like to make querying really quick. And then sometimes what I'll do is look up stuff and kind of look and see it, look at the storm and kind of get an idea of if it's going to set a record at a particular time to try to have stuff ready to go. And then when the Hurricane Center says, you know, OK, here we go, um, then it's when I'll, 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 I'll put it out. But I know with Irma, by the time Irma made landfall, I was so sleep deprived that I had typed up a list of storms and statistics I was going to tweet out when it made landfall the night before and had these various thresholds. If it hits this and it sets this record, 
And then it basically set my alarm to wake up every hour until the storm made landfall. <laughs> uh, Phil, I got one more question for you. I know uh, we're coming in on, on the time that you need to leave. And for everyone who's listening right now, uh, we have Dr. Phil Klotzbach on from Colorado State University talking about the uh, tropical season. Uh, Phil, one thing that we experienced last year, uh, it was the first really active hurricane season that affected the United States in the um, the age of Twitter and Facebook mm-hmm. and social media. Uh, what are your takeaways from that, uh, where we see all these scary 15-day hurricane forecasts slash snow for you know, the snow forecast, hurricane forecast. What are your takeaways with this first active year on, on social media, per se, with, with, with the hurricane season last year? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely would agree. I mean, you know, if we had had Twitter in 05, 2005 or 2004, it would have been very interesting to see what would have happened then, too. I mean, I think, you know, we had a lot of people that hadn't really experienced, we hadn't really had really too much in the way of hurricane activity until last year, because even in 2012 with Sandy, that was kind of a hybrid storm, um, and Twitter still wasn't quite the, the player it is was last year. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I, I think having Twitter is super helpful and Facebook and things is super helpful because you can get you can get information from some of these island countries very quickly out and pictures and things that would have taken a lot longer otherwise. But I think also, you know, there's a lot of data that's out there and it's important to understand the goods and the bads of it. Like 10 day model forecasts, you know, typically don't have a lot of, they have very little skill. And I mean, the data is out there because they, they, these models will run that far, but it's important to have to kind of know what you're looking at and not, you know, get fired up about a 10 day forecast and things. Um, but certainly, you know, after Harvey last year, obviously after we saw what Harvey did with the, the rains and the winds and everything, it really got people really ramped up. And it was like right away, Irma was forming and Irma always looked bad. Like it always just looked like it was going to take a track that was going to take it towards the Caribbean and then probably towards the U.S. So I think, you know, we had so much hype for Irma that by the time it actually hit Florida, you know, I thought the inundated with interviews that day, but hardly any. I think everyone was so burned out on the storm before it even hit. That, that the interest in the storm was almost the interest in the storm was higher like two or three days before it hit them when actually the storm actually made landfall. And obviously with Irma, while it was a horrible, horrible storm, you know, we dodged a huge bullet with Irma. I'm just going to share one last thing here because I, I think this slide is fascinating. Um, I was going to say Cuba. Cuba helped out with Irma. Just at the yes. last minute, the mountain yeah. range of Cuba yeah. really took a bite out of it. Yeah. So there was, and there was one other thing I was going to show too that I think really this is from the um this is from the uh from the hurricane center as well let's see is my is my is my screen shared can you see it not yet but uh, uh let me see as soon as it comes up i'll lock you in all right okay let me try again all righty that's it cool all right so this is one so as you mentioned irma basically cuba definitely took a chunk out of the storm and it got hit by some sheer and dry air but another thing that really spared us with irma was so the track of the storm was about 30 miles further east than what the forecast was one day in advance, which is a, still a really good forecast. But because of that, you can see the storm surge inundation, what it would have been in places like Naples and Fort Myers versus what it was. Because the storm tracked to the east of Naples and went inland there and started to weaken, as opposed to going west further up the coast, making landfall north of Fort Myers, saved a huge amount of storm surge because part of Fort Myers and Naples could very well have been underwater, just a very slight storm track shift. So while Irma was certainly devastating in the Florida Keys and obviously did huge amounts of damage in the Caribbean and in Cuba, um, Florida certainly was significantly impacted by Irma, but it was not as bad as it could have been had the storm track just a little further west. Um, And so when you have these storms tracking parallel to a coastline, very subtle storm 
shifts can cause big differences in what the impacts are. Yeah, in fact, that was um, the, the difference between having a major surge versus negative surge in some of these spots too. So that's, uh, that was, yeah. I mean, you know, went went from one to the other. And um, I remember I was doing some discussion about it in, in some live chat and mentioned this could happen. You know, if it tracks further inland, you may be looking at negative surge, but uh, you know, we certainly learned a lot from Irma and, and also hats off to the NHC for getting their track successful. I mean, they had a really successful track guidance last year. I mean, if you want to maybe mention that as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the forecast tracks, every year the forecast tracks get better. I mean, it seems like every year they're breaking records for, um, for uh, um, track predictions, one, three, five days. And I think I forget what the stat is, but it's something like the forecast five days, the forecast five days is what it was, say three days, you know, 15 years ago or something. And it seems like every year they're breaking records and the intensity forecasts are getting better too. Um, there's still challenges with predicting rapid intensification events, but they really are certainly improving. So hopefully, um, you know, with improved model guidance, um, hopefully those will continue to improve uh, for the future, but hopefully we won't see as many rapid intensifiers this year. Yeah. Okay, well, Scotty, I've got nothing else if you want to. Yeah, I was going to say that that sounds great, Phil, and we know you've got to run. So uh, I know in your presentation you was able to share your social media accounts. If you want to do that one more time, we'd love sure. to do that. Yeah, yeah, I'll just put it up. Uh, let's see, right now. All right. So oh. there, there it is. And uh, Phil, we really do appreciate your time with us tonight. And uh, maybe we can have you uh, come back on as we uh, wrap up the season in November and kind of talk about uh, what actually did transpire over the last uh over the hurricane season sounds good you can throw eggs at me if our tomatoes at me if things don't turn out the way <laughs> i was saying no, 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 no pillory for you not yet <laughs> all no. right guys thanks so much thank you phil have a great evening thank you yeah. all right guys well that was a great presentation there and shay i know you and jared and, and ashley even you with being along the coastline very uh, useful information and uh, I know we always like Ashley talked about. It only takes one storm to uh, to kind of ruin your life or, or, or your your belongings and stuff. But it, it kind of looks like it's going to be a little bit calmer this year than it was last year. Hopefully so. Yeah, that graphic you showed with Irma, uh, even even with that storm being 350 miles away, we still felt some pretty significant storm surge from that storm. I mean, you you factor two to three feet on top of any kind of perigee and spring tide that we have ongoing already along with any little bit of sea level rise that we've had. And, and, you know, we're starting to just have more and more flooding in this area. So storms even far away can still have a major impact here. And we learned that from Irma last year. So we're not very, we're not as well protected as we used to be, even from storms or like storms that are all the way down the tip of Florida. Uh, so that's something to take away from this. You know, it's, it's, it's really important, really key to, to remember that um, if you don't feel the winds, it's not there. Well, we're going to feel it one way or another. So I don't know if Jared has anything to add to that. He had some pretty good stats from Irma and, and with the, the tide tables. I think I was up in the mountains, Scotty, near you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shay, you were in the mountains. I was, uh, I, I was on the second floor holding on for dear life. Um, and, and the thing that was interesting about Irma, it wasn't just the high tides. I mean, we, we, we did it again, a top three tide in the Charleston Harbor. It was a, it fell short of 10 feet. It was a 9.97, something like that. I mean, so, I mean, really a technicality that we fell short of 10 feet. And again, that storm, I mean, it was all the way in the Gulf. You know, it was a, it, it was, it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a, a, a reverse Joaquin in that 
it, this time it was well to the west versus well to the east, but we still got that predecessor ribbon in there. And we, and we cannot forget with Irma, we can't forget the tornadoes. There were four tornadoes from Irma and many more warnings that came out of that. That was a very stressful day for a lot of people. Um, several people, you know, a lot of people were going into the tornado shelters once, twice, three times uh, that day for those quick spin-ups. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you, when you get those kinds of situations, uh, and then you get you get into October and you get fronts that are getting into the area. It makes predecessor rain events uh, just that much more prevalent, for sure. Uh, as far as outlooks, I use them as an indicator of just uh, just uh, how much uh, how much Xanax are the meteorologists going to need uh, to get through the season. And um, it's it, it's encouraging in one sense that you know we might not see the Cape Verde kind of things, but as Scotty alluded to, uh, the homegrown storms, we, you know, those are certainly, those are the kinds of things that just sneak up right, right up on you. Uh, Gaston in 2004 went to bed that night. There was nothing out there. Woke up the next morning. My car was under six feet of water and it was a hurricane, you know, or it was a tropical storm posthumously upgraded to a hurricane. So, you know, that's, those homegrown storms. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's serious a, business. That's a great point, Jerry, that you, you talk about that, you know, with hurricanes, a lot of people, you know, the first thing that pops in their mind is the wind. And, and those homegrown systems may not have the, the crazy wind speeds, but what we've seen here, Ashley, you've seen in Texas, uh, Charleston, what you guys have seen down there, Shay and Jared, is is these homegrown systems bring in a lot of rain and a lot of flash flooding potential. And, and that, for us, I believe in our part of the world, in the Western Carolinas, uh, you know, we don't really have to worry about the wind per se, but uh, even those homegrown systems, they bring some uh, flooding potential. So that's something you always have to watch for. And keeping in mind too, Scotty, that you know, just because it's a, it might be a fifty or sixty mile an hour tropical system, you can still get, you still get those gusts. In any other case, they'd be issuing severe thunderstorm warnings. Exactly. And so you can still get, you can still get tree damage. You get a lot of that water in there. It's going to loosen up the roots, and even a forty mile an hour gust at that point is going to bring trees and power lines down. So, you know, these these homegrown systems are they're a pain in the butt. That's to put it mildly. And, yeah, and yeah. they also, like Jared, you were alluding to, uh, they're very um, capable of producing those quick spin-up tornadoes as mm -hmm. well. Yeah. We saw that with Nate and, you know, and, and we know that very well on, on this program, having, you know, me, James and, uh, you know, Scotty is working it for Foothills Weather Network. I mean, Nate was, that was very serious. That ended up being a very serious outbreak. We had um, eight tornadoes up here in Western North Carolina and South Carolina. Yeah, you're in, in, in Tornado Alley up there. there not, not many people know there is a sort of an alley up through the mountains. And just, just off the tip of the Piedmont up to the base of the mountains there, there's this nice little uh, breeding ground for tornadoes. They're hard to follow. They're hard to chase because you've got lots of hills, trees, windy roads, dang, dangerous spots. You don't want to stop. I mean, I, if you ever drive in the mountains, you know you never want to pull off the side of the road somewhere, anywhere, because it's just so dangerous. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right, Shay. Um, they're normally uh, wrapped in precipitation, uh, numerous trees, and just not ideal areas uh, to chase tornadoes at all. I mean, between Silva and Cashers, uh, uh, you know, on um, uh, guy, what was the road? Uh, there's nowhere to pull off. Let's just say if you're pulling off, you're going down the side of the mountain. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very treacherous that way for sure. Yeah. And these storms nowadays, um, for, for those who are just jumping on, uh, or, or joining the last few minutes, Dr. Philip Klotzbach was on with us earlier. He had to leave at about 8.45. So we're continuing on to some wrap-up discussion on the tropics on the show. And one topic we didn't bring up tonight was Hurricane Harvey, which was in Ashley's neck of the woods. 
and just seeing how these storms are dumping massive amounts of rain more than we've ever seen uh that that i wouldn't say that's going to be the new trend going forward but it could be a, a cursor of things to watch if we if we see the storms going to slow down as it approaches the coastline especially in the gulf of mexico coming along the gulf coast uh you know we lots of moisture comes up from the gulf especially if it's in train with the subtropical jet you get a lot of intensive rainfall and there was just a massive amount what four feet of rain where you live ashley uh, yeah, South. Uh, we only got a few inches, but that's what I was going to comment on was the gradient with these storms, just like they were talking about with the uh, rise in ocean with Irma. It was the same with Harvey. We had only a county or two away that got 15 plus inches. So with us trying to make decisions, we're either going to get four inches or 16. Well, that's quite a bit. And then to comment too on rapid intensification, nobody thought Harvey was going to be a cat four. Uh, most of the models were pointing uh, tropical storm, low end cat one. And then all of a sudden that Friday or, or that Thursday, right before it just sprung up because the temperatures were so warm down there. So I would say Harvey's a great example of rapid intensification as well. And, and Ashley, with you in the EM world, um, you know, we were talking about the tropical season. Uh, what are you guys doing? How are you guys getting prepared for it in your area? So because I live so far inland, um, tropical season is always going to mean flooding and flash flooding, just like uh, the little mini system that just came in. It wasn't a tropical storm or anything, but because it was bringing so much moisture and uh, storms through our area, we're always concerned about flooding here. We live in flash flood alley. So we're going to basically run our drills and educate the public on turning around, not drowning. So if we have low water crossings that need to be closed, we tell them, hey, you need to turn around. We push a lot of that on social media. Uh, we're going to be checking our rescue teams, giving them extra training for the boat teams. I saw, I think, Austin Fire Department might have sent a team down south today to the coast for some of that uh, moisture and flooding they're having down there today. So we're always getting our training in and being prepared more for the flooding and for activation if we need to send them down to the coast again as a resource. So that's kind of what we're doing with that. Well, I'll tell you what, as far as evacuations go, Florida definitely got their practice last year. Um, I'm, I'm still just severely concerned about South Carolina, uh, Georgia, South Carolina, that the whole heading west um, north to south seems to do a little bit better on 995 to South Carolina, but we're still only four lanes on our interstates and we're just so far behind. You know, we, we had, I always think of hurricane Floyd back, you know, Jared remembers the, the evacuation for hurricane Floyd. And back then we're talking three times the population now as it was then. And it was, it was bumper to bumper. People sat in traffic for 24 hours. I mean, the, the nightmare stories are out there, but in every town, every state has its, has its, um, definite problems with evacuations, but that, that's a huge concern. I mean, you have a lot of more people living on the coast now. So if you do live on the coast, have a plan. I mean, if, if you feel like it's, it's time to leave, then listen to that. Uh, I thought our governor Haley did a great job um, evacuating for Irma um, or she called for what about five days early or was that Irma Jared? I'm sorry. I, I, no, Matthew, that was Matthew. Matthew. Yeah. Oh, Matthew there was it. no evac. There was no evacuation of Charles for Matthew. For Irma, see now I'm doing it. Right, right, right. <laughs> but she she started the, the the process about four or five days out, and um and logistically speaking, it was a good call because it was you got to get the rust off of the wheels, right? It had been so long since we've done an evacuation exercise, mm -hmm. uh, full on evacuation exercise. So mm -hmm. and it's very it takes so much time, so many logistics, so many things in play, 
it costs a lot of money too. So they got to make the right call, but just, um, you know, pay attention to what the forecasters are saying for the, for the upcoming season, whatever's going on, make smart decisions, have a plan, have your hurricane kit. And um, I can't stress enough to make sure that whatever you do stays safe. And if you live in a flood prone zone, I wouldn't wait till the last minute because then you may not be able to get out at all. Um, and yeah. I'll pass it back to you, to the, to the rest of the crew here to chime in on that. Yeah, I was yes. just going to add with the whole evacuation thing, the state of Texas actually has a model. So they can actually model how long it'll take Houston to evacuate. Uh, so they run that model and they kind of have an idea. I think it takes at least three days. So that's another thing with rapid intensification. If you have something spring up within 24 hours, you're not evacuating people because you're going to have people stuck on the roads, you know, and stuck there can't move. And we don't want people in their cars with hurricane coming in and everything else. So that's a big deal. And they run drills for that too. And then that's another thing I forgot to add. We prepare for that evacuation up here because we open shelters for the coast people when they come up north. So we're a part of the state plan for them to kind of come up the interstate and kind of stop off at, at Austin and other areas to uh, shelter there. So that's another thing we have to be prepared for in case we have a big storm like Harvey. All right, guys. Well, it's uh, about nine o'clock. Do you all have tweets? I know we didn't do tweets of the week last week. Does anybody have any pulled up? Or do we want to jump in? I want to I want to do one more thing on the okay. preparedness that Shay and Ashley have talked about. The most important thing you can do, it, we, we're, we a lot of places have now moved to the idea of evacuation zones. And so South Carolina EMD has um, the coastal areas sliced out into evacuation zones. So the best thing that you can do is know your zone. Um, if you, your, your state emergency manager is going to have everything on their website for that. In fact, just tweak the zones for 2018. Um, you know, know, where, know where your evacuation zone is. Know when it's going to be called. Um, they went to this in like 2004, and it just got used for the first time in 2015. Went pretty well. So, um, But know that zone. Know, you know, keep abreast of those changes, uh, and I think it's going to – and you're going to be just fine. That's right. Know your zone, know where to go, know what to have. And um, if you need to, a refresher on what you need to put in your um, your kit, your hurricane kit. Uh, back in May, we had Cheryl Nelson on our show, and she gave a lot, rundown of, of what to include in those kits. And uh, look up that show and listen to it and uh, make sure that your kits are all ready to go just in case it was to, uh, was to happen. So uh, with that, Shay, Ashley, Jared, do you guys have a tweet? I'm trying to find mine. I know. I'm looking for one now, too. I, I didn't okay. plan on it tonight, so I'm kind of I'm – I've, I've got one. I'll go ahead and do mine first, then, and uh, I'll give you guys a couple of seconds to find yours. So this was uh, last Thursday. This was uh, just in the uh, – just north of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area. Uh, this was over Lake Norman uh, outside of Mooresville, North Carolina. This was a microburst that was – excellently or excellently uh, captured on the terminal Doppler at the Charlotte airport. And as you watch it uh, play there, you can kind of see the colors, uh, the green and the reds moving away from each other in that area. Uh, there was numerous reports of down trees and power lines and all kinds of wind damage. But uh, that to me was a, a very classic sign of a splat uh, from a microburst that happened in uh, just North of Lake Norman late last week. So, I'm using my own tweet for tweet of the week. I don't know if that's good or not. <laughs> I don't know if that's allowable, but that's what I'm doing. That's funny, Scotty, because I have um, 
I have one of my <laughs> tweeting one of my own as well. Um, yeah, and there we go. Um, this this right here, I was just talking to Scotty about this uh, before the show. Where you know we're out on Sullivan's Island, and, and uh, some of us do some kiteboarding out there, and and there was some storms coming from inland. You could hear the thunder, and you know I, I I put up all my gear and was going back to the car. Other people were starting to fold up their gear, but there were still people out on the water, and you know there, there's always this feeling like this storm is far enough. The thunder's pretty far away. Not too worried about it, but. This storm, this particular storm cell was unique because you can see all the lightning bolts surrounding it. And these bolts are miles outside of the storm, which where, where you would normally see blue sky. So we call this bolt out of the blue. And this one particular one cracked right out over the beach just after I got off the beach. Uh, hopefully, I think it forced most of those people off the water right away when they, when they saw it because they weren't expecting it. But just another reminder that these storms during the summertime and storms in general, they, they can go out to 30 miles. Uh, so you want to be very careful just because the storm's on overhead does not mean that lightning cannot strike you. In fact, this type of lightning bolt out of the blue claims lives every year, more so in Florida than anything else, but still very, very dangerous. So that was my tweet of the week. Just wanted to put that out there for educational purposes that um, be aware if, if storms are heading your way, I would clear out of the water no matter what. Okay. I think Jared's next, right? Yeah, I can be next. I can do that. And I'm going to do James's on his behalf. He's uh, hey, he's had to um, step back. He is having uh, just a wonderful evening with technology. So uh, thanks to James for pulling together what he can. I know that he's been struggling. But this one, uh, this is going to piggyback for Shay. This is a couple days. This is about this is the same night, uh, the night of the 15th. And then uh, so Kevin Closel, uh, Texas Embassy, um, big on event safety. Great follow on this. Um, great photo. I mean, hey, you can't. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of a lightning bolts and a bunch of people at a baseball game outside, surrounded by metal things. What could possibly be wrong? Um, but I noted that you know the, the lightning was way too close. Um, three cloud to ground strikes within five miles, and I was downtown and I heard the thunder from one of those. It sounded like a bomb went off. Um, and so I found this very interesting because you know you, you don't want to you know if, if you're within five miles. You know, you got to clear it out. I know, Scotty, you, I'm sure you have plenty of experience with this, with your, uh, your, your stay consulting, you and Ricky. And, um, you know, it just continues to reiterate the point that it, there is a, a, a very interesting, uh, almost like we're just kind of playing with fire here a little bit. Uh, and, and that we're just hoping that nothing goes wrong. Um, but it, but it could, I mean, you know, you had CG within a mile uh, there and you can see the ring. Uh, the first graphic there is the ring around the, the location of Joe Riley Park in downtown Charleston. There were a lot of cloud to ground lightning strikes that night. Uh, that was a very busy night. There was a uh, severe thunderstorms inland there. So, uh, yeah, so Jared, something to think about. Jared, the last sentence of, of Kevin's tweet, which, Kevin, if you're watching, we still want to get you on the show. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, like he talked about, you know, and he's talking about apparently something really bad is going to have to happen before the rules are, are changed. And, and I, I don't want to throw off on the Charleston river dogs because um, I do work with minor league baseball and Hickory with, with their consulting. And when, um, when the players are out before the game, the team has control. But as soon as uh, the umpires walk on that field, it, it is up to the umpires to control the game. And so it's to their discretion of when to stop the game and when not to stop the game. So, um, you know, this is something that's going to have to come from minor league baseball and major league baseball before, uh, before we see anything. 
Yep. Umpires need to figure out uh, balls and strikes before and, and, and get meteorology degrees. That's right. Um, <laughs> I've or got just, James. Or, or um, just give control over to a meteorologist who's on site and let them make that call. Yeah, I like baseball. Uh, hint, hint. Um, I got James's up as well, real quick. Um, and uh, and so uh, James comes to us uh, with a, if you need a good reason not to exercise or do yard work today, you got it. And um, this is from uh, WTOC. This is this comes out of Savannah, but uh, first alert: he may impact outdoor afternoon exercise yard work plans. So, honey, couldn't blow on heat advisor in effect. WTOC told me not to. Uh, uh, John Weatherby in the gang. Uh, said nope, no weather. So <laughs> no, no going outside. So uh, kind of uh, kind of fun there. Yeah, we've had quite the heat wave. Uh, we had heat indices in Charleston get to 110, 111 in a couple spots uh, immediately after the sea breeze passage today. Hottest day of the year at 97, um, and that looks to continue for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I wonder how many uh, ma or how many wives. Uh right into the weather or to the uh, news station there and said, what? My husband's got to be out here doing the yard work. Hey, hey, heat advisory. You gotta, you gotta listen. You gotta listen, man. That's well, right. that last picture from James, Carrie Hilliard's got to go in there to have tea. There's, there's a sponsorship. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. There's the, there's the uh, little ad there. All right, Ashley. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to follow the trend of using my own tweet. So we have these great river tra trails around where I live. Uh, like I said, we kind of live in hill country in Texas where we have a lot of rivers, streams, and flash flooding. So I like to take a hike on these trails, and I notice that there's a huge tree growing in the middle of this river, which is a little lower than normal because we haven't gotten a lot of precipitation lately. But this is a huge problem because if we do get a flash flood event, uh, we do not want vegetation or anything in the middle of these rivers because it hurts the flow of the river. So basically a really good mitigation project would be to go in there and unfortunately remove the vegetation and the tree from that, but it would hopefully reduce flooding, but also um, basically avoid the tree floating down river and causing any harm with what could happen with a flood. So this is my plug for mitigation projects because we want to prevent the disaster before it actually happens. And that is a big problem here in Western North Carolina. Uh, there is a lot of just trees and debris and everything in our area, lakes and uh, streams and rivers from all of the flooding. And it's only going to cause issues when we have the next heavy rainfall event. Exactly. And on that, Jared or James, I wish we had some breaking weather news. Uh, one of the, you know, breaking weather music or something like that. Uh, while we were talking, a flash flood warning has been issued for the Greensboro metropolitan area. Uh, <clears throat> this goes until midnight. Two inches of rain has already fallen over the city and another one to two inches of rain is expected. As you can see, this is a uh, thunderstorm that stalled out in the Greensboro area between Interstate 40 and Interstate 85 and has, uh, has already produced over two inches of rain and uh, up to another inch or two uh, is possible in that area. So if you are traveling between Winston-Salem and Raleigh tonight through Greensboro, uh, watch out for some uh, flash flooding in that area. We will, uh, if you're listening to us, we'll continue to monitor that. And I'm sure uh, James will be on it with our weather camera network and we'll get some uh, video streaming of the Greensboro area with possible flash flooding. So, Jeez, Scotty, uh, I'm looking at that thing and I'm, I see Urban Heat Island written all over it. Or, or would it be a derecho? No, those are both two <laughs> show topics we're going to be talking about. 
We're going to be talking about those two show topics. We just got to line us some guests for that. So speaking of that, next week we have the Sirens Project on. This is a group of guys out of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, they go storm chasing with their drones. And so uh, they're going to be talking to us next week about uh, their adventures out in the uh, mid uh, Midwest and, and talking about the storm chasing and all of the information and data they get from that. And then the next week we're off for the 4th of July and then we come back and we talk about volcanoes with Dr. Janine Kreitner uh, from Concord University. And then uh, on the 18th of July, uh, something we've already talked about tonight, we're going to be talking about tropical tornadoes with uh, Roger Edwards from the Storm Prediction Center. So that's a look at the uh, next three shows here for the Carolina Weather Group. As always, if you have any show uh, recommendations or, or folks you want to bring on the show, please reach out to us and uh, we'll